1: Welcome to All Rings Considered, Entertainment Weekly's podcast breaking down the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. And we are headed into battle this week as we talk about the very eventful episode six, which starts the fight for the Southlands. We'll be joined later by two of the people who actually fought in that battle Morph with Clark, who stars as Galadriel, and Tyru Muhadin, who plays Theo. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about everything that happens in this episode. And there is a lot to talk about, including orcs, elves, some interesting revelations, and one very explosive mountain that turns out to be a Portant of Doom. I'm your co-host, Devin Kogan, and as always, I am here fighting not side-by-side side with an elf, but side-by-side side with a friend. My co-host, Christian Holeb. Christian, welcome.
0: Hi, Devin. It's great to be here. You know, this show has been a slow build, I think we can all agree, um, but I've had faith since the beginning that things were going to pay off eventually, and, and we start to see some of that pay off this week, so it'll be very fun to talk about and i'm sure our listener our listeners are coming in probably pretty pumped probably pretty amped so i hope to match their energy
1: I am so hyped to talk about yeah. this episode because, I mean, we get a big battle. We've had a lot of, um, you know, we've had a little, a couple little skirmishes, some good action scenes. We've had lots of, you know, people, you know, dramatic conversations, some moments of humor, some moments of levity. Um, but this is probably the most intense thing we've seen so far. And we get to have a lot of characters meet. You know, we've had all these disparate storylines, you know, kind of spread out across Middle Earth and Numenor. And here we have, you know, Galadriel hanging out with Aaron Deer hanging out with, you know, and Halbrand meeting Theo and Bronwyn and all of these these familiar faces. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, I guess I kind of want to talk about like kind of big picture. Tell me a little bit about your reaction to this episode. Like when you sat down and watched it, what was going through your head?
0: Right. So I do want to do a little table setting here, which is that uh, Amazon Studios put together a little event here in New York City earlier this week where they Uh, screened for us episode six and seven coming up next week jealous yeah so uh listeners i know you'll all be very excited to hear but this is the first episode where i know more than devin because (laughs) i've seen (laughs) one episode in advance and so now i get to be you know the wise holder of the ring of air or whatever and i know a little bit of what's coming but don't worry i won't spoil anything i just want to lord it over my co-host here rude and and i don't want to brag but it was definitely definitely cool seeing it on the big screen because I think it's a very cinematic episode. It's, you know, Devin, I know we talk a lot about the Battle of Helm's Deep as kind of a high watermark of, of fantasy battles on screen. Maybe one of the best in Lord of the Rings tr- movies itself and also one that we kind of always think of when we watch fantasy battles on Game of Thrones or whatever. And this week kind of gives us our Helm's Deep, gives us this this nighttime battle scene where the women and children have to hide in a safe place while an outnumbered defensive force tries to hold their own against orcs. Uh, Theo even kind of has his, his Aowin moment where he's told to, to go protect the women and children and says, well, why can't I be out there on the front lines with you and gets the comeback like, well, that's because I trust you to take care of those other ones. So, you know, some parallels there, and I guess I have to start by applauding the, the tactics of Arendir and, and Bronwyn and, and their villagers. They, they come up with really great tactics to, to face Adar's superior force. And Adar also has some, some tricks up his sleeve and, and some battle tactics that he surprises them with. So, you know, we begin with kind of the orc forces approaching the watchtower where they think that the Southlands villagers are all kind of holed up. And lo and behold, you know, they think they just have Iron Deer to deal with as an elder archer. But the surprise is that they have rigged the tower to collapse. And boy, that's so fun and satisfying watching uh, a bunch of orcs get crushed under uh, a gigantic falling tower. It's a great move.
1: I love it. Yeah, Yeah, I... As a general rule, I am a huge fan of the trope where a ragtag crew of villagers has to band together to protect their their town from invaders. I mean, this is... Can't go wrong. It's Seven Samurai. It's The Magnificent yeah. Seven. It's uh, A Bug's Life. I mean, it's it's the best <laughs> trope in the whole world. I mean, it's my favorite. I could watch it forever. And so, uh but I thought you know I thought this was a really I loved the way this was set up. I, I I loved some of the very inventive kind of moments where it just wasn't a big battle of just like people hitting each other with swords. Like the way it was structured narratively was really fascinating. There were sort of all these ebbs and flows where you think, okay, it's going to one side. No, the other side kind of has an advantage. Oh. Wait, it's the the original side has a trick up their sleeve that that, you know, I thought it was very well structured narratively. And I also thought we talk a lot about, you know, Helm's Deep as sort of being one of the the high water marks for for fantasy battles. And one of the things is Christian has heard me yell about this a lot, just like in real life, just because it's something I care about a lot, is Helm's Deep is incredibly well lit, even though it's in the middle of nighttime, you can see what's right. happening, and this is a battle that is also very well lit. You yeah, can tell they, a story they carry that is that legacy, yeah. That is, you can actually see what's happening. Whereas, you know, I love Game of Thrones, but oh my god, I have to turn my brightness up on my TV every time I try to watch it because I'm just like, what's what's happening? Who's right. that?
0: <laughs> and then that's had its influence, and and it's like I respect it, but at a certain point, like. I don't need to be totally in the dark to understand that the characters are totally in the dark, you know, like there's things where it's like like watching Helms Deep. I get that they're fighting at night, but I wanna see all that that's happening and there and there's ways to do that so yes i I thought of you when I was watching that and and I clocked that they were lighting it so well, and I think it's great you can see everything that's happening. And like you said, narratively, with the pacing and stuff, you also get, I think, important in battles like this, especially something that's going to take the better part of an hour, you have to mix up both kind of the macro scale fighting between armies with kind of intimate one-on-one stuff. And there's that moment kind of still in the first half of the battle, I would say, where Erendir is kind of one-on-one with this big burly orc for a little bit. I love that. And when he finishes eventually, uh, you know, with with Bronwyn's help kind of getting the better of him, you know, you see that it feels like the battle has been won. and, And basically you can take that as a stand in for the battle as a whole, and that the battle as a whole has kind of followed the same trajectory as this duel has in the same way to reference a different battle from Lord of the Rings. Much of the battle at the Black Gate in Return of the King is kind of shown in this one on one battle between Aragorn and a giant troll. And their one on one struggle is kind of standing in for their armies as a whole. And, and I think that that's, you know, you, know, you do want to see armies going at it and, and we get that, but um, it's good to get up close with people, too.
1: Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that fight between Aaron Deere And I wrote in my notes, like, Mega Orc. Like, I don't think he has a name, but he's just, like, this ginormous orc. Um, and I, I like that, you know, we've seen Aaron Deer be incredibly good at his job throughout this entire series. I mean, he's, like, doing flips and doing crazy stuff. But, like, you really, I mean, like, it, this is a brutal fight. Right. Like, you see how much he's struggling. Like, he he comes very close to death several times. And I was just, I, I love Ismael Cordova's performance yeah. um, throughout you know, throughout this entire series. But I think like some of the physical and emotional things he does in this episode is just like really struck me as amazing. He's been for me, one of the big breakout stars on a, on a
0: show that is filled with, with breakout stars. Definitely. Certainly as an action star, because his character is not particularly outspoken so. or anything. You really get a sense of him through his action and his fighting and, and, and in this episode, and he and he does a good way of conveying who this person is and what he feels about things, you know, through the way he shoots arrows and and directs people in combat, and you know the fact that at the end of the day he uh, can't win without Bronwyn's help is is a very Tolkieny testament to you know the kind of alliances that are necessary to win the important battles. Although what I really you know, as much as I love the fighting, what I really appreciate about this episode is uh, what it shows us about the orcs. Because Adar is yeah. not is not opposed to uh, a multiracial coalition either. And so, just as it seems like Arandir and Bronwyn and the Southlands villagers have won their battle, they realize that those weren't all orcs they were fighting. Uh, some of them were humans, and in fact, they're former neighbors and people they knew who were just wearing the big, uh, skulls and and stuff that these orcs adorn themselves with I like that you're seeing the orcs that these are not the industrialized armies of Sauron and Saruman in the third age this is an earlier iteration where the the orcs are not into as into machines and, and armor and industrialization and, and industrial weaponry as much um, they're very clad in kind of tribal aesthetics and and skulls and totems and stuff which as we see you know that's cool in and of itself but also then makes it possible to hide the identity a little bit of uh, some of your combatants.
1: Yeah, that was kind of a brutal twist, like that, like the look on the faces of some of the villagers as they like remove these masks and helmets to see their their friends and neighbors was was pretty brutal. And yeah, I mean, and I love what you said about, you know, these are not industrialized orcs, you know, these, they, you know, haven't been working in the mines with Saruman and, you know, building great machinery, you know, they don't have a grand, you know, to a big battering ram to to knock down the the walls. But yeah, I, I I was fascinated by this. And so we sort of see this battle goes well in some respects, but then we learn that, you know, they they still have a long way to go. They they still they have not triumphed over, over their invaders. Fortunately, uh, there is another group who is, who is sailing to Middle Earth right now, heading yeah. to the Southlands. And we, we sort of get interspersed as this battle is happening. We, we get to check in a little bit with, with the Numenorians as they are, are sailing east to, uh, the Southlands to, to see what's going on. I love some of these little moments. There's a great moment where, um, Sildur gives his horse an apple, and he like eats the same apple as his horse. And yeah. I was like, "That's so gross, but so adorable at the same time." Yeah. I was like, "That's extremely Aragorn to me because Aragorn's such a, such a such a horse girl." Um, <laughs> but uh, like, there, there's all these like little moments there that I, I was was really struck by. Um, and then finally, we get the the Numenorians arrive, and the the tide kind of turns, which I absolutely like what a what a great moment it reminded me a lot of you know the Rohirrim arriving to to save the day in in the lord of the rings um you know all of the the fights on horseback with the spears and things that gave me strong uh, Rohan vibes throughout, and and I loved getting to see you know some of these these figures you know getting to fight as the battle turns into day. What did you what did you make of the the Numenorean cavalry?
0: It was awesome. You know I was I was ready to cheer basically. It's a cathartic moment in the way that so many of those, as you said, because Rohan always is kind of the last minute reinforcements in Lord of the Rings, and as we've been saying, this battle is similar to Helm's Deep in a lot of ways. And that moment, especially since they're kind of coming with with the Dawn um, is very similar to A.M.R. and Gandalf uh, bringing their company to so. leave Helm's Deep at the end of Two Towers, uh, which is awesome. And and I can only imagine the kind of sounds you were making every time Galadriel hung sideways off her horse to dodge an arrow. It was so
2: cool. It was so cool. She's <laughs> yeah. <was> so good. <laughs> yeah, and
0: I love that, uh, <laughs> that moment with Theo being like, who's that? And our <laughs> end being like, that's the commander of the Northern armies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is, we know the commander of the Northern armies is, uh, that refers to, you know, the elves were used to be much more in the north of Middle-earth in a lost kingdom once known as Beleriand um, was the elf headquarters in the days of Morgoth, and that's where their kind of power base was when they were fighting against Morgoth, so that's kind of what he means as uh, you know, Lord of the Rings viewers might be more used to, you know, Lothlorians kind of in the the middle of the country, tilting towards the south, and so is Rivendell and, you know, those those kingdoms don't exist yet, as we know, Elrond and Galadriel are far from that stage of their lives so the elves are like a northern people right now and and that's why she has that title
1: absolutely i loved this whole sequence i loved some of the stuff with isildur and his father um elendil there's a great moment where you know isildur is sort of told to hang back and he's he's what he's like a bannerman or he's you know Uh he's not a squire or something like that um and eventually you know he's watching the fight and muriel sort of gives him a little head nod like okay, go. Uh-huh. And he gets to his father, right, as his father has, like, almost been murdered by an orc. And he's like, oh, my God, Dad. And then Elenda's like, it's okay. I'm all right. I'm uh-huh. all right. And I was like, oh, this is no spoilers, but that's that's foreshadowing,
0: yeah.
1: um, you know, being like, Dad, I'm so glad you're okay and you didn't die in this giant battle against <laughs> orcs and the forces of evil. <laughs> yeah. That would be really tragic.
0: halbrand's the one who actually saves him in that moment. Halbrand's yeah, right?
1: the one who actually saves him. And let's talk a little bit about Halbrand because because he Big episode has a for Hallbrand. Big episode for Hallbrand. There was I, I wrote in my notes I was just like at one point I was just like, Charlie Vickers is hot once he's <laughs> taking a shower and is like Oh, you didn't know? like greasy <laughs> mode? <laughs> You know when he's like a castaway on a on a on a raft and hasn't you know bathed in like six months or whatever. But I was like, oh yeah, he's like major Aragorn vibes. He's like, I'm I'm. This is cool when he's like you know not using his his skills to beat up random Numenorians in the street. It's like, oh yeah, this is this is what he's capable
0: of. Yeah, totally.
1: But yeah, what did you make of that whole? I, I love that whole confrontation where where Adark sort of ex- escapes and Gladril and Halbrand essentially hunt him down.
0: Amazing chase scene. And yeah, actually not something that we get a ton of in Lord of the Rings. I mean, I guess it's similar to kind of the Nazgul when they rode horses and fellowship is kind of the closest we get, although usually it's the bad guys chasing the good guys and trying to get away. This is a little bit of a reversal where our favorites that we're cheering for are hunting down this bad guy. I thought that that was great. And it was a very thrilling sequence. I guess it's hard to talk about without also getting into Galadriel's interrogation of Adar and the things yeah, that so he let's tells talk her. About that. So this is something I think I've kind of beaten the drum for on this show earlier. It's one of the things I was a little bit hoping for from Rings of Power. Is you know I love Tolkien and and for me loving something means engaging kind of with the criticisms of it and or the flaws of it and I think kind of. What I would agree with that is the biggest flaw in in Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's conception of it is how kind of one-dimensional the orcs are. And I think that the movie, yes. by Return of the King, the movies add a little more depth. Like you get Gothmog, that, that great orc general in Return of the King with the Missing Eye, like you get a little personality from them. You get a little bit of, you know, you have the infighting in Two Towers between Ugluk and Grishnak and stuff. So so there's a little bit of that, but I was hoping, I, I thought that there was a big opportunity in this show to, to, to show us what, what orc culture is like or, or what orcs... Wants out of life. And to my delight, we finally kind of get that in this episode from Adar's own mouth. Like Arendir, he is not a particularly verbose character up till this point. You know, he said a few things and and we've seen him kind of be very intimate and fatherly with some of his orcs. Um, But we haven't gotten a mission statement from him before. And we finally do when Galadriel and Holbrand succeed in chasing him down. Don't bother to look inside the package that he was holding. I'm sure that's fine. Rookie move. But they don't even know what they're looking for, too. That's true. Iron Deer was just like, he's got something, you can't let him get away with it. And they're like, okay. But he doesn't explain because he doesn't know, even Iron Deer doesn't know, and we, the viewers, certainly don't know until the end of the episode what that object is supposed to be or do. So we'll get to that in a minute. But they they successfully chase him down. Galadriel stops Halbrand from killing him and takes it upon herself to interrogate him. And Adar gives us... His mission statement, he agrees with her assessment and and loyal listeners of All Rings Considered will remember Devin kind of mentioning this in, in earlier episodes when Adar first appeared. Um, as she surmises and as he admits, he was one of the elves that was captured by Morgoth and tortured. You know, it's kind of interesting. I had always I had always read that in the Silmarillion as he took these elves and turned them into orcs and that's what orcs are. But what we see here with him is that some of they still kind of are elves. Some of them, they're just orc like and twisted. And so Adar has taken it upon himself to be a leader for these people. And he doesn't see them as monsters or degradations of Iluvatar's creation, the way that so many elves do. He sees them as, as his children, as people who have a place in the world and, and deserve a place in the world. And, most shocking of all, he says when, when Galadriel says, I don't believe that you're working for yourself. I don't believe that you're the final authority. Where is Sauron? And Adar is talking about Sauron. And we flash back to the first episode in a scene that hasn't been mentioned much since then, when she and her squad were exploring Sauron's Arctic laboratory and she saw his mark and they, they saw that he had been there, but there was no other sign of him except these orc skeletons and, and the troll that had been left behind. And Adar tells her, yes, he was he was experimenting on orcs. He was trying to find more knowledge. And what Adar says, and, you know, the whole time in this episode, this series, as this podcast has gone on, we have had viewers online been like, where is Sauron? Who is Sauron? What's up? Where is he gone? Where is he living? And what Adar says is that Sauron is dead and I killed him. Because he was torturing too many orcs, and they're my children, and he said he was just going to keep doing it, and I said, enough is enough, you can't harm my children anymore, and I cut him open and I killed him. What no. What was your, what do you make of that, Devin?
1: I was like, what? Yeah. That's not what I was expecting yeah. at all. That was like a legitimate surprise. Yeah. And um, really both good. from a narrative perspective and also, you know, the look on Galadriel's face. You know, the idea that she's been chasing this evil for, you know, so much of her life. And it's, we the reader know that that Sauron is not gone. Um, we don't know. I have a lot of questions. Is Adar telling the truth?
0: It's famously hard to kill permanently, this guy, you may have heard. Is the... Th-
1: yeah, I mean, even if you chop off his hand and steal his magic ring, he yeah. can still, you know, come back later. But um, it, it's it's kind of a shocking reveal. And I'm curious whether Adar is telling the truth. I'm curious whether yes. maybe he did kill Sauron and Sauron's mortal body has diminished yeah. in some way and, and he finds some way to return. Um, or, you know, and and... Maybe Adar just believes he did, but I have so many questions. Yeah. But I think it's such an interesting twist, and I think it's actually really smart storytelling from the part of the the showrunners. Because you, you and I talked about this a little bit last week, but you know, when the show was first announced, you know, the second age story is about
0: the the rise of Sauron. We were like, it must have, where's hot Sauron? Where's
1: hot Sauron? I we, we we need our hot Sauron, and so we we kind of assumed that okay, well, the show is about Sauron he's going to show up in the first, in the first season, you know, we're on episode six of eight and he's nowhere to be found. And here's this bombshell that not only is he like, you know, not lurking in the shadows, but he's, um, you know, supposedly he's dead and Adar killed him.
0: He might be absent from the stage. And this, and you know, what's kind of interesting about this is that, you know, as we've noted, you know, the show is called the rings of power. We haven't gotten to their forging or even the mention of their idea yet. Nope. Maybe we will by the end of this season. Maybe that'll be something for future seasons. But what we are seeing, as we've discussed on this show in previous episodes, is that we're seeing the reasoning build up to make the rings. Like we are seeing the elves feel threatened, feel mortal, feel like they have to preserve themselves. For now, they think Mithril is the key to that. Eventually, they will forge their rings as the way to do that, to preserve elf life and magic and power in Middle-earth. The rings is how they will do that. And maybe this confrontation with Adar, um, and and you, I think you're right to say that, you know, this. you should only trust him as far as you can throw him, not least because, like, he just clearly has a different world. He sees reality differently than the other characters do, than we do. So he may be describing something in a way that's real to him that maybe does not mean what we think it means just you know just think about the other ways he talks about other stuff like you know he's not necessarily uh and and he was he was tormented by morgoth you know he has a different kind of not the most trustworthy not the most trustworthy (laughs) but even like just just twisted in some way you know like the way he sees the world is maybe not the way you see the world but i think there probably is something to there was some kind of confrontation between them because otherwise why would the orcs follow him if if sauron was around or if he or if he hadn't you know the orcs are a martial culture certainly we know and so if they follow adar it's because adar must have proved his superiority to sauron in some way and of course that retroactively ends a great resonance to him getting so mad at Waldrag for Waldrag thinking he's sauron oh you think i'm Sauron? i killed sauron (laughs) you know uh sauron tortures orcs i lift them up you know Uh, I love that. (laughs) Um, But this is all I was going to say. So we're seeing the elves find their reasoning for one day forging the Rings of Power. And maybe this confrontation is what inspires Sauron to come up with, well, I need a way to preserve myself if I am threatened again by powerful warriors. Or, you know, Adar was uh, formed by Morgoth. You know, to to, to preserve myself as the heir of Morgoth, Uh, I need some kind of way of preserving myself cuz there is a little bit of a power
1: vacuum at this point right. in the second age you know after on the on the evil side of things you know pretty
0: much every pretty much on the good side too there, there's not a lot of um you know that the kingdom of gondor isn't in existence yet and you know there's kind of linden but it only exerts its power so far so you know there's there's a lot of power for the taking um, so, yeah, I think that this stuff with Adar really delivered on what I wanted from Orcs, like some reasoning, some culture, and and him saying that that we are people of the world, and and we're Lovatar's children as much as you are, and we deserve part of the world. And then Galadriel's response to that being uh, threatening him with genocide is, <laughs> uh, I think, and not, you know, I think Tolkien and Lord of the Rings are kind of taken for granted as... Uh, black and white, g- good and evil are pretty clear. And I thought that this was a a, a really interesting and, and, you know, the distinguished competition Game of Thrones is kind of the whole, whoa, good and evil aren't clear. Who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? You know, this isn't Game of Thrones by any means, but like it's giving depth to the people we think of as villains and it's showing kind of this cruel Violent side to the people we think of as heroes. Um, Devin, is there anything you want to add on this before I put on my conspiracy hat and give you my uh, potential reading on on an aspect of this?
1: Ooh, I mean, I'm intrigued. But no, yeah, I just, I, I totally agree with you. You know, that's something that's always been kind of a something that's drawn a lot of criticism in in Tolkien's work is that for all of its nuances and for how it can be very, you know, very complicated in many of its storytelling, a lot of it does come down to, you know, sort of essential myths. You know, Tolkien was obsessed with with classic myths and classic stories right. and and sort of this black and white idea of good and evil. There are orcs and goblins and trolls and they are evil and need to be destroyed. And that's something that, you know, Tolkien reckons with, with more kind of morally gray situations in other ways, but that's always been a very kind of black and white reading. And so I'm so fascinated by the fact that the show is sort of diving into, you know, in some ways, its view of good and evil is, is very earnest, is very, you know, there is an earnestness to the show that I think is, is kind of well-earned and, and I, I do really respect, but I also like how it's it's also willing to grapple with like these more, complicated ideas making you know the the fact that Galadriel is is so blind to you know her hatred and her her you know single minded purpose that like you know it is this moment where she's like threatens genocide and you're a little bit like whoa yeah <laughs> um and i just i've been fascinated by you know, I, I, and I think some of that ties into the response to some of these characters. You know, some people have been like, why is Galadriel so angry and so like, you know, and so single minded and like, wow, they're like, she's such a ridiculous character. And I'm like, no, that I think that's a that's a feature, not a bug. I, I think that's, you know, very much intentional with with how single minded she is and how it, it blinds her sometimes to the the reality of situations, her her sort of single minded hatred and her her pain and her, you know inability to stop this fight. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I've just been really impressed and, and kind of fascinated by the fact, the way the show threads the needle between, you know, telling these very earnest kind of classic stories while also grappling with some, you know, more complicated ideas.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we've been told that Galadriel's, the, the reason for her unending hatred is, is Sauron himself. So you would think that she would be, relieved or excited to hear that he's been destroyed and instead she's madder than we've ever seen her, you know? Like <laughs> um and it reminds me of uh, you know what Gilgalad and Elrond were were kind of saying back in the first episode that, you know, her uh unrelentless quest after Sauron may end up strengthening him as as much as uh as hindering him. And to that point, that that's an evidence uh point in in one direction. So, Sauron, you know, I, I, you know, obviously, Lord of the Rings comes before Harry Potter, but with Harry Potter in mind, it, it's easy to think of the ring as a as a Horcrux, or that that's what very much so Sauron wants. That he's some, he is a Maiar, and he is not a Maiar that is bound into a feeble body like the Istari are. He is incarnate in the world in his full power, and so even if you destroyed his physical, like I guess one reading that I might be expecting at this point is that perhaps Adar is right and he harmed or destroyed Sauron physically in some way. And Sauron's spirit, not for the last time, survived that and perhaps found some kind of host that it bonded to and is living in. And here's what I'll say. Adar doesn't recognize Hallbrand when Hallbrand says, remember me. And Adar is like, no, I have no idea who you are. And both Adar and Galadriel ask, what did he do to you? And Hallbrand doesn't answer. We are told that Adar has harmed two people in this episode. Halbrand and Sora are the two people that we are told by different characters that he has harmed. I have laid my theory before in previous recordings that Hallbrand is my choice for Sauron, and I think my theory now is that Sauron's spirit is rebuilding its strength within Hallbrand, and that that is what Gilgalad and Elrond's visions mean by saying that Galadriel will strengthen Sauron because of the way that she has saved Hallbrand and is empowering him and strengthening him. That is now my theory after uh, this episode.
1: That is a fascinating theory because I sort of took this episode as being like, well, that get, that sort of disproves the Halbrand is, is Sauron theory. Like I sort of was like, well, here we see him like actually, you know, like fighting on the side of good and you know, fighting uh, to stop everything that's happening in the Southlands and you know, um, I mean, the the other reading is that you know when Halbrand talks about you don't know what you took from me, like my assumption was that it was sort of maybe a, a sort of a Waldrigg situation where maybe he was, he pledged his loyalty to Adar and then like Adar forced him to, or like killed a brother or like some, something along those lines. Yeah. But I'm kind of intrigued by your theory. Yeah. I, I see no, no holes there. I think I'm, I'm very curious to know where it goes because I think I agree with you that I don't know what it is, but there's something up with Hal mm-hmm. I don't know where it's going to go, but yeah. I, I, and I don't know if I mentioned this, but but my theory is that I, maybe I mentioned this on a, on a previous podcast. But my thought was that maybe he is corrupted in some way, and he is one of the future Nazgul.
0: He's one of the nine. You said I like that yeah, theory too. I,
1: I I that was kind of my theory is that you know maybe he does become king of this this of these people, but then he is corrupted once they actually have the rings and forge the nine rings to give to men, and and you know um how you know. Uh he maybe he's the witch king or or yeah. you know, someone along those lines. But I'm I'm intrigued yeah. by your theories.
0: And I will say since I said since I mentioned earlier that I've seen episode seven, this is not something that is revealed yeah. or happens in episode seven. Yeah. This is uh just my theorizing. Pure speculation. Pure, we love speculation. Pure on speculation. Show.
1: Yeah, we, we don't get really a Gandalf watch this episode, but
0: um, um that we will get next episode.
1: <laughs> uh, no spoilers! <laughs> I just <laughs> no spoilers. mean heartfoots. <laughs> okay, okay <laughs> Yeah, I, I I I'm fascinated by by this reveal, and I guess we should talk about sort of the final. Yes,
0: the final reveal, the final reveal of the episode where we've been like, what does this sword hilt do, except be a cool sword. And you know, it's kind of been interesting that, um, you know, I guess it didn't really hit me till this episode the, the kind of similarities between the sword hilt and the One Ring as an object, clearly of malevolent power that nevertheless is tempting in some way or or empowers you in some way but you know a ring you know what that's for you put it on your finger a, a, a sword hilt what do you do with that well turns out it's a uh it's a usb basically a flash drive <laughs> uh for a mountain for a specific mountain yeah
1: Um, a mountain, uh, called Oridruin, um, which we better know as, uh, in, in the common tongue, uh, Mount Doom. Mount Doom. We get this reveal that not only did the, and, and, you know, I'm watching this episode and they defeat Adar and they're sitting in the village and like Muriel is having like this little picnic with like all of Bronwyn and everyone and like Bronwyn's healing from her wound. And like, it's this like lovely little moment, but I'm like we still have like 15 minutes left in this episode. I don't think this is where it ends. Oh,
0: but, uh, but, I, and I also was thinking is maybe you were, maybe you forgot it that right before ADAR ran off, he said, Waldrag, drag, I have a task for you. Yeah. And so I was like, "Uh, what
1: happened there? It's not
0: over." So,
1: uh, Waldreg continues to be the worst character in the world. (laughs) Um, He is—he sucks so bad. He literally um, uses this this sword hilt to um, basically divert a river, do some terraforming,
0: geoengineering.
1: the river flows into um, this fiery underground uh, volcano and basically causes the volcano to erupt, basically turning the Southlands into Pompeii. Yeah. Um, and finally we see Adar's plan click into place. The plan is to essentially create a barren, inhospitable wasteland that is uh, hospitable to orcs, yeah. a place where it is so smoggy and cloudy and they never have to worry about the sun.
0: It's their Shadowland.
1: And it is brutal. Yeah. We see all of the, these these flaming rocks falling down on, on the people as they're like having their nice little post-battle picnic outside. Um, people screaming in terror. We see just the look of fear and realization on Gladriel's face. There's a moment where she sort of lifts her hand back to pull her sword off of her back. And then she just freezes because she's like, I, I've been fighting my whole life and I don't know how to fight this. Yeah. And it is it is a kind of a brutal revelation. The idea that like... Oh, this is about not just about bringing, you know, we we, we kind of thought okay, maybe the first season is about bringing Sauron back to power. No, it's about the formation of Mordor. It is about the creation. And this is an, this is a Mordor origin story. Yeah. A Mordor origin story. <laughs> a
0: Mordor origin story. Yeah, you know, I think kind of what's been interesting for us and for viewers of this show is We know some of the places it's going, but I could not have predicted which things were going to happen first. You know, like, we know that the Rings of Power are going to be forged. We know that eventually... The last alliance of elves and men is going to happen. We know that Numenor is going to sink. We know that there will be a hot war at some point. We know that the Southlands will become Mordor. These are all things we know, but it, it was a little harder to tell what order they were going to happen in, and, um, and how they were going to how happen. they were going to happen, when they were going to happen. And so, Mordor is kind of coming on a little sooner than I expected, honestly. Um, but it's a really It's a wonderful moment, really climactic. Adar lives up to his promise to the Orcs and to Galadriel that he's like, no, we deserve a place in the world and I'm going to make a place in the world for us. And I like the the terraforming they do, you know, the geoengineering and (laughs) astronauts on Mars or whatever trying to create an atmosphere. Like, they've created an atmosphere that's more hospitable to them. And, And like you were saying, this episode is so good at kind of... Swinging back and forth, zigzagging you. You think it's going one way, then it goes. You, th- you think the villagers are winning, then the orcs are winning, then the Numenorians come, and it seems like everything's okay. And then Mount Doom is activated. And it really lives up to its name this episode. Uh, just the falling meteors and lava cr- crushing anyone who's unlucky to stand in the way. And I just want to mention, even before it was activated, we did have a moment of uh after the battle of the Numenorians, kind of riding around and and celebrating their as it would turn out short-lived victory that uh there's a moment where Isildur's talking with his friends and they're like so what do you think of Middle Earth what do you think of the mainland and he's like well I really like the mountains oh do you Isildur one mountain in particular (laughs) well one day you might maybe you might see it from the inside you might see it up close someday (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, that made me laugh a little bit. But yeah, no, I, I, you're right. It, I mean, as it, it's kind of a, a, silly kind of fantasy plot idea, the idea of like changing the Earth and terraforming the Earth. But this is something that has been, you know, I, I was reminded of all the other times that Tolkien has written about this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the story of of Middle Earth and 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 of Arda is about, you know, kind of reshaping the land. You know, we hear about. Um, you know Morgoth raising great mountains of of the Valar. You know shaping the land. We hear about you know the destruction of uh, Beleriand and you know and things like that right. throughout the Summerillion. Yeah. We'll we'll get to um, you know Numenor eventually and and how that changes the shape of the geography. But it's interesting how geography has always been a big part of Tolkien's storytelling, mm-hmm. how it's not just, you know, human kingdoms or elvish kingdoms, you know, kind of strengthen or grow their borders and shrink. It's it's the actual topography of the land changes quite frequently throughout over thousands
0: of years. Right. And and they're described in that language. Um, you yeah, know, I was yeah. mentioning earlier, talking about Galadriel's title as the commander of the northern armies. And as you point out, the elves used to be up north and they aren't anymore because their kingdom called Beleriand, it just it's, it's not that it was overthrown or destroyed, it doesn't exist anymore. Like the continent yeah. was reached when the Valar came down to, to defeat Morgoth and manifested themselves in the world. That was a cataclysm. And we get we get the briefest glimpse of it back at the beginning of the first episode where you see drag- the dragons fighting the eagles and the elves fighting the orcs and stuff. That's kind of your glimpse of the War of Wrath. And it resulted in that and the ways that it's described um, by characters even long after it happened. The breaking of Thangoradrim, that, that Morgoth had this mountain and underground fortress that was destroyed that was broken that was caved in and and unmade and the the thing that uh, we haven't re- it ha- hasn't come up in the show or, or said in this term but the Silmarillion always talks about the marring of Middle-earth by, Mel- by Melkor that what Morgoth did to the world was he marred it he um changed it and cast his his mark on it and and this is um you know in some ways kind of analog to you know the garden of Eden or the fall of man or, or, or whatever that the world was one way and it, and it would, and it could have been a peaceful paradise, but the devil came down and, and changed it and marred it. But that's something even in, even in the world of Tolkien kind of belongs to the world of myth and the first stage and the Silmarillion and stuff. And now we're seeing it happen in real time at, a, you know, and clearly the ca- this is not something that the characters ever expected uh, to experience themselves.
1: Yeah. It's a very Tolkien idea. The idea that, you know, the shaping of geography is, and and the shaping of the physical earth is is tied to, you know, changes in good and evil.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, yeah, the idea of creating a, a land inhospitable to trees and inhospitable to, to things right. that grow is 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 very
0: Tolkien, and yeah. Is, 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 I, I, <laughs>
1: I mean, what could be more Tolkien than that?
0: That's a great point, actually. It kind
1: of reminded me a little bit of, you know, when, um, not to cut you off, but it reminded me a little bit of, it's its not a perfect analogy, but the idea of Saruman, you know, cutting down parts of the old forest, clear say. cutting, yeah. yeah, the area around Isengard, and and this is a sort of a more extreme version of that, using a volcano instead of, instead of axis. But in a way, it's
0: almost more natural, because it, you're just, right. its a, the volcano exists, you didn't make the volcano, you just figured out a way to... Uh, play with it it. or manipulate it or activate it um that is in some ways more natural because yeah i was going to say that that this is something that we see in the third age and in lord of the rings itself that the land is being changed it just doesn't stick out to us as much because it's what happened in our world you know deforestation and industrialization and stuff we're familiar with that from our own history and so maybe it reads as a little less exotic than um, diverting a river and activating a volcano terraforming in that way, or the, the reshape amid taking the, the earth from uh, a flat earth that you could reach heaven by, <laughs> by sailing West and, and turning it into a round earth, um, as happens at the end of the Silmarillion. And yeah, because I've just been, I've actually, I've not only, as I keep mentioning, I've been rereading two towers and literally I was just rereading the tree chapter where he goes in depth on the changes that he's witnessed to the Middle Earth in his lifetime and that, you know, he says, I could just walk and walk forever and it would never not be trees. And and as crazy as Fangorn Forest seems to our heroes, it's it's almost like this last remnant of what was once a great forest as it was on North America once upon a time. And where I am in New York currently was once just, you know, kind of an endless forest. So, but the, but that's stuff that we're, you know, it reads as kind of normal yeah. to us in a way that this Um, kind of exoticism doesn't, but, but I see where, where Adar is kind of coming from that, you know, he's just, uh, kind of using nature to his, just kind of fine tuning nature to the advantage of, of, uh, him and his orcs. I might be coming pro orc over the course of, uh, this recording. (laughs)
1: You're like, yeah, they deserve to to they hang know. out in Mordor and like block out the sun. And <laughs> Listen, they don't deserve to like trees. go around
0: killing people, but like they exist. What are you going to do, genocide dis- like, them? I'm very glad you're like disagree with you on that point.
1: Let them have their little restaurants me, in Mordor exactly. with, with yeah. and
0: <laughs> Eat worms, whatever. Like Timon and pumba, like have their little uh, maggoty bread store, and uh, <laughs> and then they can have a uh, you know. Oh. Oh, we've eaten this maggoty bread. For three stinking days. <laughs> for three stinking days. <laughs> Looks like meat's back no, on the menu, boys. They should Exactly. What I would say I, if I was the orc proprietor of a restaurant that just got a shipment of uh, uh horse meat or whatever.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, this is this is all Adar wants is just to create a nice little tourist <laughs> area for his orcs to open restaurants where they can go outside. And I
0: love it for him.
1: You know, I he just wants to be a supportive dad. Yeah, he He's does. like, I, I see your dreams and we want to make this happen. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I think we covered all of the major plot points and there are a lot of major plot points in this episode.
0: Yeah, because it's not a it's a very action episode. You know, the, a lot of episodes that we cover, we kind of have to get into the niceties of. Of what people are saying to each other or or how characters are interacting and and not to say that there's not a lot of great character interaction this episode, but these big action beats and moments and stuff that, yeah, I think we've kind of uh, covered the long and short of. Are there any uh, moments that we haven't gotten to that you wanted to talk about?
1: I think we hit most of the the things that I wanted to talk about. I just wanted to praise all of the performances in this episode. Yeah. I, I was really impressed by by some of these these little little character moments, kind of sprinkled throughout the action, and also the the action looks fantastic. Like I was yeah, very really, impressed really by um, exciting. You know some of some of the the big moments, the big scale battles, all the stuff on horseback, and and another thing you and I have, have talked about a lot throughout this series is you know every time I see an orc, I'm just like. The prosthetics are just incredible. The makeup, the performances, everything there, it just, it looks good. It's so much you know, better I,
0: than the CGI orcs of The Hobbit, where it's just like, this is not good. Yeah. I have no attachment to this.
1: I mean, maybe that's why you like the orcs yeah, so much. I be. mean, there's there's sort of a, a gravitas to yeah, them here. And and then just all as I've said, with all their yeah.
0: skulls and cloth and, and kind of... Uh, this kind of culture that they have now that that will eventually give way to a more industrial wartime culture by the time of Lord of the Rings.
1: And also maybe some restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. Um, but when we come back, uh, you can hear my interviews with two of the participants in in the great battle for the Southlands. Uh, we have with Clark, who plays Galadriel, and uh, we have Tyro Mohafedin, who plays Theo. Stay tuned. Please enjoy my interviews with Morwith Clark and with Tyro Muhafadan. Thank you so much for joining me, Morwith. I'm so excited to to talk to you uh, a little bit about episode six, where a lot of stuff happens. (laughs) Yes, it is action-packed and lots of characters. It was so much fun. Absolutely. I mean, take me back to, you know, when you first like got the script for this episode and kind of figured out like, okay, here's all the crazy things that I'm gonna be doing. What what excited you most, you know, when you when you first started working on this episode?
2: I was really excited by just kind of that I would get to work with Ismael, Nas, um, Tyro, all the Southlanders. Um, but also when you have days where there's just loads of supporting actors there, um, they're so exciting and there's this like there's a slight hysteria when there's kind of a hundred people all kind of creating chaos in an organized way. And yes, yeah, so it was really exciting and it really felt like kind of that's what we were driving towards.
1: Yeah. Cause you guys have all, you know, you've been in Linden, you've been on Numenor, you sort of been in these little silos and here, you know, you get all these characters who actually get to spend time together. That's that must be nice. Yeah.
2: yeah. And also it was kind of, there's loads of stunt work. So there was also a kind of a huge stunt department. So to kind of get to meet all these people who kind of have backgrounds in kind of martial arts or circus or dance, um, which is really amazing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I know you've talked about the training process before. Is there like a particular skill or like a stunt that you've learned that you're like really proud of?
2: I'm really proud of the two handed sword scene. Basically when I can use my left hand to fight because I never thought that was possible because I've never been able to even write my name with my left hand but also surprisingly one of the hardest things to do is she the sword. Really? I don't know why it's so difficult. But that will also take always take the most mark takes. And um yeah, so I was I was always proud when that managed to actually go smoothly. Because you also feel like so awkward when it doesn't work. It feels very ungladrial.
1: <laughs> yeah, I imagine that's kind of tricky because you've got the thing like on your back and I imagine it's Yeah. Yeah. Or when it's down here, you're just like,
2: well, I'd have just stabbed
1: myself in the leg there. I'd be like bleeding out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite as glamorous. Absolutely. No. <laughs> and I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, that, that confrontation scene in this episode where, where Galadriel, you know, kind of in, almost interrogates Adar, you know, where, where she kind of learns about his history. What interested you about like the dynamic between those two two figures?
2: I think what's really interesting about them is that, first of all, they're both ancient so they both kind of represent middle earth um in quite different ways but they are kind of almost part of the landscape because they've been there so long and in terms of what it does to gladriel i mean for the person you most despise to be the person who sees you the most is just horrible and that's what she that's what she's faced with and i feel that this is a real turning point for her really accepting through kind of immense discomfort that the darkness being in her is true. That she's not a saint. And that also kind of being so one-track minded and so, so independent. That's when you're at your most kind of easily twistable to the darkness.
1: Yeah, I was struck by that moment where, you know, Galadriel talks about essentially wanting to to stamp out every orc in Middle-earth, and, you know, Adar is kind of just arguing that he just wants to create a place for his, his children. What did you make of, like, that tension, you know, kind of between, and uh, that idea?
2: Well, it's kind of flipping her world, and I think there's something interesting about exploring, kind of, the elves rule over people, and there's a discomfort in that for her here. And I... As kind of a Lord of the Rings fan, I'm really excited that we're like seeing more about the orcs. Like, why are they the way they are? Do they think? Do they feel? Do they care about things? Can they feel sad? Can they miss people? Um, And I feel that Gladwell is also learning all of that. Yeah, so it's a really pivotal scene. And as kind of like a fan, a really exciting one for me, because lots of questions were answered.
1: Yeah. Like that was one of the things I've been so fascinated by with this show is how it really, you know, we, we don't get to usually spend a lot of time with the orcs and kind of learn about, you know, what they want and who they, who they want to be. Yeah. And, um,
2: also just kind of, it's such an interesting part to play as a performer, like all the creature actors, because it is like, how human are they? Where does kind of, where does kind of humanity stop? And like, how's that affect you, kind of in your body and in everything you do? And Yeah. It's been really interesting. And also, I feel that despite herself, she feels understood a lot by Dar. Yeah that's
1: that's, yeah, that's that's not exactly like they, they don't, in some ways they don't have a lot in common, but in some ways they, they really do have a lot of common. Yeah. in common.
2: Yeah, because they both have grand ideas. And I think this is a problem as well. Like they are both, he is kind of, no, even though he describes them as his children and stuff, he is the leader. He decides what happens. And that's also what she's doing. It makes sense to me that Gladwell, you know, she ends up in North Florian because to, to be capable of such power is so dangerous. And I think this is a real moment where she realizes how dangerous that is.
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. And one of the other things I've loved about these last few episodes particularly is is the relationship between Galadriel and Halbrand, kind of how it's it's yes. evolved, you know, from from being on the raft together to, you know, kind of seeing each other in a in a way that they they kind of understand each other. Tell me a little bit about what interested you about sort of that arc of that that relationship. I think that it's two people who really started off
2: using each other who then start to feel bonded to each other in a way they could never imagine she utterly underestimated him I mean he's the king of the southlands but also he he also sees her in a way that she's not prepared for and like he's a mere mortal how can this be happening and yeah so it was really fun and it was a really great build-up um I think for me and Charlie to get to this scene where they're kind of utterly spent and kind of vulnerable however vulnerable you can be as those characters um their vulnerability is laid bare and um when we were filming it we both just felt that they couldn't possibly bear to look at each other in this moment it would
1: just be too much to be so seen oh i love that yeah there's that that tension there that that's so kind of uncomfortable but also kind of you know kind of fascinating mm-hmm.
2: yeah and also just working with charlie it's been such a joy he is just one of the best, the best guys. Going on that journey with him has just been um, wonderful. And I think kind of both of us, when we were like, they're going to the Southlands together, yay! But it also meant that we were kind of going to do some insane fight scene together with also Ismail and everyone. So it kind of felt, I feel that episode six was kind of a big moment for all the characters, but also all the actors.
1: Yeah, it's probably nice to be like, you know, you, you guys are co- co-workers and, you know, you run into each other, but you're like, oh, so this is what Ismael's been doing down in the south. Yeah, southwest. exactly.
2: <laughs> also, watching Ismael do his stunts was
1: incredible. Yeah, I'm, every time he's yeah. on screen, I'm like, how, he, how does he do that? Yeah, a
2: lot of hard work. And also, though, he, like, has um, put in lots of kind of different types of Latin American dance and stuff into his stunts. So he's really created them. They are, like, are very specific to him. And that's just kind of,
1: it's just amazing. And it's paid off so much because it's just beautiful and means something. That's amazing. And yeah, I mean, while we're talking about stunts, I have to ask you about the amazing training fight scene in episode five with the numenorians oh, yeah. which is just so <laughs> much fun. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what excited you most about, you know, bringing that to the screen?
2: I c- didn't think I was going to be able to do that at all and i have an amazing stunt double rosalie buttons who um was kind of almost in a way that was like frightening to me she was like i think you're going to do this by yourself i'm not even going to do any of it and i was kind of like rosie don't say that i can't do it and through just these amazing teachers that i had like i managed to do that whole scene however i am doing all the kind of spinny sword stuff but to kind of do all that kind of almost falling over that all the new Numenoreans were doing is almost more tiring and demanding. Like doing those like quick stops that kind of particularly Aric Tarrant had to do when I was kind of holding knife to his throat. That is such a skill. Um, but also lots of the people in that scene where the stunties who had taught us how to do it. Um, so being on set with them was just so much fun, and also watching the stunties have to pretend to not be as good as fighting as me um, was very funny. <laughs>
1: that's that's got to be a nice you know kind of change of pace to be like you know I'm the one knocking you over this time yeah I'm gonna teach you all how
2: to do this it was quite it was at times I was just like
1: oh very exposing
2: but really
1: fun oh that's so fun and yeah and we talked earlier this summer and I remember you talking about um you know the process of putting on Galadriel's armor you know how Mm. um you know how much you love that kind of ritual of you know what was it like you know, walking around in, in a full suit of armor with a sword on your back? Like, just what, what's that feeling like? Um, quite squeaky, to be That's honest. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, but no, it's, it does, like, change the way you feel about yourself. But yeah, talking about what you're saying about the ceremony of it, you know, it would take four people to get that armor on. And, um, it would sometimes make me quite emotional because I was just thinking, like, of all these times, you know, when all these women have, dressed these men for war, taken all this care, tying up all these special bits of armor. And so many of them just wouldn't come back. I was always thinking a lot about kind of the past and history because I was playing someone who'd been alive for a little bit and feeling kind of connected to kind of human history. Kind of, I felt that a lot when I was riding. That's something we've kind of done for thousands of years, like horses and humans have evolved with each other um was really kind of profound and helped me so much with Gladiol. And I think getting into the armor was one of those. I was just like, people really did this, but the armor was much heavier.
1: That that does make a difference. You know, it's it's one thing to to yeah. wear the the prop armor where it's hopefully you can move a little bit better.
2: Yeah, um, I don't know how they did. The chainmail was actually heavy, and um, I was quite glad to. Um, there was some like incredibly tall stunties, which meant they had much more chain mail. And I was like, thank God.
1: <laughs> They're wearing like five extra kilograms. <laughs> a little extra weight. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, I'm curious for you, you know, last time we talked was sort of before Comic-Con and, and you know, before anybody yeah, had really seen of- the show. Um, yeah. What have the last couple of weeks been like for you now that the show is, is out in the world and you're getting to share it with people?
2: We're getting to share it with people, but also we're seeing it. So we're seeing it with everybody else because we only saw up to episode three. Um, And so it's just really exciting. Um, And also just, I absolutely loved being in New Zealand. I was so looked after by everybody there. Like the craftsmanship and the art that went into making this show was just beyond what I could have fathomed before. And seeing it now, a year after leaving, it's been wonderful to reminisce about what went into making that and actually seeing the fruits of thousands of people's labour. And so there's a bit of sweetness to it, um, seeing what we made. Um, but I'm, I'm really proud. And it's also, it's lovely for it to be seen. And um, I've been really touched hearing that, like, people are watching it as like a whole family or kind of as a group of friends. Um, I like that kind of connection can be made through it.
1: Absolutely. Beautifully said. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me. I, I, um, thank I you. Can't yeah i i cannot wait to see the rest of the the season like after this episode i'm like i need to see what happens next
2: (laughs) yes well i look forward to talking to you again it'd be interesting to talk once once it's all out
1: once it's all out all right great well thank you again thank you thank you so much for for joining me tyra i'm so excited to talk to you about um specifically epi- episode 6 which is so epic. There is a lot that happens in this episode. Yes. Um when you think back to filming this, I mean what what comes to mind the most?
3: I think it was it was a massive massive learning curve for me as an actor, um episode 6 because it was the first time I'd ever like I had to cry and and, and on camera and I'd, I'd never cried on camera before and I remember I got the script maybe six months in advance and i knew i i knew i'd had to cry and i I couldn't and i couldn't for months um and then once i just started working with charlotte she just kind of just knew how to get me into that spot um and then once i figured out how to get into that spot i just was able to get there and yeah it it really really shaped me it added a whole new um the aspect to my acting um and it was it was yeah i'm really thankful for that
1: actually yeah that's amazing yeah i mean because this episode is like such a big culmination of like everything we've seen so far so i imagine it's like it's a you know a bit daunting but also kind of fun oh
3: yeah it was it was it was very very daunting um you know reading the script and kind of realizing that kind of the whole episode is based around you know my storyline like that whole area um it was it was scary because there's there's a lot going on with that um but we we kind of all came together and just put our heads down and and got working and I'm I'm really, really happy with with what everyone's done. What we've all done. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And um I, I love, you know, the relationship that we see between Theo and Bronwyn. It's it's so great. And there's those those great moments in in you know in this episode in particular. Uh tell me a little bit about, you know, working with Nazanine. Um what was that, you know, relationship like?
3: Oh Naz and I are extremely close. Uh we met back in December of 2019 so nearly we've known each other for nearly three years um obviously going into this project I'd done really nothing much before this um I'd done a few short films a few commercials but but nothing nothing major and obviously Nas you know is quite decorated so uh she she helped me feel comfortable on such a big set and and on such something so huge especially for me and um she just kind of Taught me what it was like to be an actor and what it was like to to do what we were doing, and I and I'm so thankful for her. And um,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so great to have that that resource, you know, on 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 set with you. Yeah, for sure. Um,
3: uh, she actually became really close with my actual mom, which was kind of cool. So like, they would go off on their own little coffee dates, and I'd be like, no, can, can I come? Like, <laughs> okay, uh, but
1: yeah. Oh, I love that. And yeah, I mean, you talked about how this is an episode that's sort of like the culmination of the of the storyline with, you know, the sword hilt and and everything with Theo. You know, what interested you about kind of that plot line and the fact that Theo is like so drawn to this this hilt?
3: I think it's just it's something so talking because it's talking, like that is what, you know, if you know the trilogy, that it's what it's all about, being drawn to that. To that thing. So I think it was, it was really, really cool just kind of to kind of be that in this series. Um I mean I don't turn into Smeagol or uh, like Golem, I don't know anything like that, but like I think I could kind of feel it at times, you know? Um so I think it was just it was just really interesting to play with play with ide- that idea of, of corruption and being drawn to something. And it is so so talking. Um and watching the trilogy and and watching little interactions with that people would have with the ring. I kind of took inspiration from that and sort of put that into what it was like holding the, the hilt. And um, yeah, it was fun. It was really fun.
1: Yeah. I love those parallels. And um, I, I really love in this episode, there's that great scene sort of near the end um, where Theo and uh, Aaron dear, like have that conversation and, you know, Ismail is, is so fantastic. Like this whole episode, tell me a little bit about, you know, working with him and, and what he's like on set. Oh,
3: love Ismail, great guy. We've got our we've got our secret handshake. We we I don't know. We we love BTS. You'll see a lot of clips of us just doing stupid stuff on set together. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he was he was he was like he's like a big bro. Um, on set he he like like Nas. He made me feel comfortable there and um just once again showed me what it was like to to be on a big set. Um, and it, even like now like through the tour. Um, that we just went on, he, he would kind of would put his arm around my shoulder and be like, look, this is, this is what we're doing. And, um, it's really, it's really, really cool to be sharing experiences with someone so cool as
1: this. Yeah. That's so cool. And I mean, yeah, I know you were, you were pretty young when you were first cast in this, how old were you when you like officially got the job? I was 14 with a voice wow. probably
3: four octaves higher and five inches shorter. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So yeah, I mean this has like been a significant period of your life, you know, working on this show.
3: Yeah. I mean it's it's a a big chunk of my life because I mean it's it's only three years, but it's it's 14, 15, 16, 17, four years. Wow. Um, so yeah, I mean I was the big years of maturing have been have been through this show and um I think I've I've matured quite strangely considering I've spent so much time with adults on film sets and not at school with my with friends but um yeah i mean it's really interesting and and i've got life experiences that not many people can can say they have as well so um it's yeah it's a real blessing to be able to to be able to talk about it and share
1: that's amazing and yeah i'm curious for you you know you talked about how you know you'd done some work before but nothing on this scale what was the biggest surprise or was there anything like you weren't expecting when you when you you know first got involved in the show
3: I mean, this might sound sound crazy, but tense. I was like, I remember going and I had my first set visit, and it was actually the scene of um Miv and Charlie on the raft. And I was just going for a set visit because I was at the studio. I was like, "Oh, why not?" And I remember walking down, and I was like, "What? This actually looks like a movie set?" Because I've only ever seen like you know, like photos of what a movie set looks like. Like, this is what it's like. And I was like. And there's always like tents and there's like, you know, those chairs, the wooden chairs. like Yeah. And I was like, and I saw them like in real life in front of me and they're like tents and like cameras on cranes. And I was like, so people running around and like big racks like of costumes. And I was just like, whoa, this is, this is real. Like this is a real movie set. And so seeing all that was just kind of mind blowing for me and was like such a wow moment. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds so stupid, but it's so real. That's exactly what I was thinking.
1: Oh, I love that. Yeah. Cause like everybody I've talked to is just the scale of the show is crazy with the costumes and the production design and everybody.
3: Yeah. I mean, it was, it was insane. I mean, even just like the the sets that we worked on, it was, there was kind of no imagination needed because everything we needed to get into character was just there putting on the costume every day and, and having dirt splashed on my face was, was enough but then, to be completely engulfed by a whole watchtower or a whole village or you know everything it is it is um so easy to do to do our jobs when, when we had everything right there for us and um yeah, it was really special
1: yeah, I mean that must be especially some of the like the Southland sets like you said are so so beautiful and and RIP, RIP the Southlands oh yeah <laughs> so that oh that's so cool and I mean take me back to your audition process what what do you remember most about that experience
3: well the audition process was long um funny thing is uh my brother auditioned for the exact same role um oh no a way week, week before I did yes yeah, so he'd gotten the audition and he did a self tape and then a week later we got an email saying oh we want tired to, to to tape for it and so I put down a tape and didn't hear back anything for a few months and was just kind of like oh I guess I didn't get it and then my agent calls is like oh, you got shortlisted. And I was like, no way. Wow, I got shortlisted from Lord of the rings. Like, that's such a cool achievement. And I was happy with that. They got me to do a callback. And I remember the callback took hours. I think it was like almost four hours doing take after take after take. And it was quite funny because my brother was housing at the time. And so me and my mum would drive over to where my brother was at and then film the self-tape. And then we'd we'd go home and then Toby would call us midway on the way home and be like, the casting director said, she wants you to do it again. And then I was like, oh. so we turned around and we literally did it at least six or seven times. And I did that that so many times. And I was like, if I don't hear back from this, like, I'll be so mad because I spent so much time in this. Um, and then didn't hear anything for a while. And I was kind of like, hmm. And then got a call again saying, guess what, Tyree, You're still shortlisted. They want you in New Zealand next week. And it happened so fast. <laughs> Um, all of a sudden I'm in New Zealand, which was crazy. And I was, and I was doing a, a screen test in a studio with massive green screens and real cameras and like crazy. And I was like, what? And then I came home week later, I got a call saying I got the job. And then two weeks later after that, I was moving to New Zealand.
1: That's amazing. like, welcome. Welcome to Lord of the Rings where, you know, <laughs> bring your, uh, we're headed to New Zealand.
3: Yeah, it was it was really crazy because it was just like so slow. And then all of a sudden it was like bang, 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 bang. And now I'm in New Zealand. Was,
1: yeah, crazy. That's, that's incredible. And yeah, well, I mean, what have the last couple weeks been like for you? You know, you you dedicate so much of your life to the show. You know, you're making it in New Zealand. It's top secret. And now it's out and you finally get to share it with the world. What, what's what's going through been going through your head these last couple of weeks? I mean,
3: I've watched every episode at least four or five times. I think I've seen the first two, like like more than 10. Um, because uh, it's just, it's so crazy because I've been thinking about it for so long. Ever since I got the audition, I was thinking about what it would be like to work on this job. And then I worked on the job and then I would think about what it was like working on the job. And then I was just thinking about what it's going to look like. And now that it's out, I just, I just hope, like, I'm just thinking about what all the fans think um and yeah i I watch it with my family this is this is generally what happens so i will be at school when it comes out it'll come out at 12 pm when i'm at school i'll pull it up on my phone and watch it on my phone i won't go to whatever class i have fourth period and i'll sit down and i'll just watch the fourth episode i'll be like great get home i'd watch it with my family and then the next day i'd get all my friends together and we'd meet at someone's house and we'd watch it all together you know as, as friends and it was yeah it's really really nice to be able to share something so close to me because it, it, it was my life and I'm just, yeah, so happy to be able to share it.
1: Yeah. And that's probably so nice to like, be able to show your friends, like, see, this is what I've been doing. Like, this yeah. is what I've been up to. Yeah. I mean, I
3: was trying to convince them for so long that I wasn't just like a featured extra with two lines and they were like, Oh, Ty, this is nothing serious. And I was like, look, look, I'm actually like a serious character. Look, see. Uh, yeah. But they're all, they're all really, really happy for me and, and really proud. And yeah, I'm really grateful for them.
1: Oh, that's so cool. Well, uh, I mean, congratulations on the whole thing. And thank you for taking the time to, to speak with me. This, is, this no, has no been way. so much fun. Thank you so much. Well, and I, I cannot wait to see where the rest of the season goes.
3: Thank you. Yeah, me too.
1: Our thanks to Morphith Clark um, and Tyra Muhaften for joining us. And our thanks to you uh, for joining us as we break down this episode. If you like the podcast, uh, please like and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review on, on Apple Podcasts. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and if you have your thoughts on theories or our theories or want to tell us how wrong we are, come find us on social media. Uh, you can follow Entertainment Weekly. That's at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. And you can come find me and Christian at... Devon Cogan and at CM Holleb. Thanks so much for joining us. that's it for this episode of all rings considered if you liked what you heard follow rate the podcast and leave us a review on apple podcasts to keep the conversation going follow entertainment weekly on all socials at ew on twitter and at entertainment weekly everywhere else you can also tag us at at devin kogan and at cm holub
0: this episode of all rings considered is hosted by devin kogan and christian holub produced by devin kogan christian holub chanel johnson sami junio lauren klein and dalton ross Edited by Lauren Klein. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.